0: Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Ben Rosenblatt, a physical preparation coach who has had an incredible career with roles at the British Olympic Association, English Institute of Sport, the FA, Birmingham City, and more. Ben has recently set up his own high-performance support company called 292 Performance, which we'll learn about in today's episode. But a large part of today's conversation is going to be focused on intentional coaching and the key learnings from Ben's professional journey. This one's really easy listening because of Ben's personality and it still packs a really valuable punch for what it covers on coach development. So enjoy. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by VOL Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy-to-use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Inform Performance is a proud partner of Humac Norm by CSMI. One of the best and simplest ways we can resolve a limb symmetry strength deficit is simple isolated joint training on the Humac Norm isokinetic system. Isokinetic resistance allows the athlete to stress their muscles at full capacity throughout the entire range of motion. Supplement your athlete rehab or performance program. With a highly effective and data-rich machine, by using the Humac Norm Isokinetic System by CSMI. To learn more about the new Humac Norm and refurbished machines, visit humacnorm.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's episode with Ben Rosenblatt. Ben, welcome to the show. It's uh, it's great
1: to have you on, mate thanks very much thank you so much for having me it's uh i'm really privileged to have a conversation with you after listening to so many of uh the informed podcast uh, informed performance podcast up to this point well it's good to hear i
0: actually uh, i didn't admit it to you before but i heard you speak i think it was like 2014 at the european speed conference in um in the uk oh, at right. the belfry uh, and i was i was in the audience yeah. sponging and stealing some of your ideas so uh it's good to go full circle to be able to get you on the show and uh and pick your brains in person properly.
1: That's amazing. Do you know what that was actually one of the favorite uh, conferences that I've presented at. I really enjoyed putting the um I really, really enjoyed putting the presentation together. And um I met Jonas at that conference, Jonas Dudu at that conference. And we had like a bromance instantly. We both like loved each other's presentations, got switched numbers and spent the whole journey back to London independently in different cars on the phone to each other, shooting the breeze and talking training. And that, that's where our kind of bromance started, actually.
0: Well, by a small coincidence, I had a my first ever phone call with him about an hour ago today. So, uh, yeah, small small what about that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I wanted to – well, one of the many things I wanted to do in, in this conversation with you, mate, was you've had some really interesting stops along your career. Um. And I'd love to kind of tease some of the key learnings, I guess, you've had along that journey. I'm sure there'll be a lot yeah. of kind of organic tangents that we'll spin off into through that. But can we, can we basically t- do like a this is your life and talk through where you've worked and and I guess kind of like how you were as a coach or what you got out of each stop along the way? And we'll just riff off however random this becomes.
1: That's, well, random sounds good to me. I've, I feel more comfortable in chaos than any other situation. Um, so if we can start at the start, if you like, um, I was, um, I was playing sort of semi-professional football and trying to make it, uh, you know, into the the dizzying heights of the conference. Um, and, you know, I was at a sort of an academy player at at some Premier League clubs and things like that, but couldn't quite get the step up. Um, and I realised around that and at the same time. Um, I was personal training at LA Fitness. Um, So what that would have been in like 2002, I don't know, some some time around there. Earlier actually, 2000 to 2002. So I guess my coaching journey really, really started as someone who was trying to understand more about my own physical preparation. And then also like learning from some amazing personal trainers and fitness instructors at this gym who were just hustling every day trying to get clients, um, and I'll tell you what. There's a story about that that really struck stuck with me. There was two trainers who I was really close to friends with. Like one of them was, um, he had I won't name say any names, but he was a genius. He had studied everything, you know, pull check or the NSCM stuff. Like absolute genius. He had like two clients, and then there was another guy who was a really solid coach. But he was, you know, beautiful, handsome and really charismatic. And his books were completely jammed. And so I suppose what I learned there is the balance between sort of really critical thinking and trying to get a deep understanding of your craft, but also learning from him how to sell, how to really, really listen to people and make sure that the service you're delivering is kind of connected with their needs. And I think that's really stuck with me up until this point in my career, I guess.
0: I had a really similar experience, actually. I started as a personal trainer and some of the trainers that I worked with rarely opened up their books or went on weekend courses, if I was b- very blunt about them, but fantastic personalities and could walk the gym floor and scoop up clients um, yeah. on a daily basis quite easily. And then there was other trainers who were similar titles, reading Paul Cech and uh, Carlos Santana, I think was one of the other uh, oh, yeah, throwbacks. Yeah, yeah, And really- um opposite experience they'd have like two clients um but be great trainers technically so yeah i think i probably saw a similar balance
1: yeah and i think that whole thing of, uh, but i think you know that sales piece or that really what it is is about understanding the people that you're trying to work with and trying to see how you can the skills experiences um that you've got or maybe that even that you don't have um can support them so even, you know, now or as I've gone into more leadership roles, it's more about how can you find the skills that those that particular group requires and bring that in to support them. Um, yeah, so I guess that was a really important learning thing. And when I went to um, uh, UIC, as it was then, which is Cardiff Met University, um there was one s coach there working with the rugby team and, he, again, he was a really excellent coach but they didn't have the resource to support any of the other athletes and I was living with some tennis players and became friendly with the tennis coach and I said, you know, I'm an S&C coach. I'd like to be an S&C coach because that's why I was playing football. I could have carried on doing that route but I chose to go into university a little bit later to kind of, um, yeah, to study, to become an S&C coach and learn, learn my craft um, and yeah, I just started to coach immediately, the tennis team, then track and field guys. Um, and, you know, I guess there's another kind of poignant experience because one, trying to get university athletes who've never done SNC before, never know what it is or even how it can value add value to their game. The only gym slots we could get on were like 7.30 on a Thursday morning. And if you've been to university in the UK, you'll know what happens on a Wednesday night. Wednesday sports day, so everyone's out to sort of three or four in the morning on Wednesday night, so trying to get the athletes in on Thursday morning after you've been out as well is, probably, is, a, is tricky business. Um, so it was, you know, trying to, again, understand their needs, understand what the coach was trying to do with them and how we could complement and support each other. Um, so that was a really formative experience, um, I guess, because there was no, it's that whole like there was no one else doing it. So it gave me the space to jump in. And maybe if I was at a bigger university or even now, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to do stuff like that. Um, so then I got the opportunity to go and I thought this was the best deal in the world. There was a student exchange program with um, Long Beach State University, which is in California. And so, you know, it, it was, again, during like the kind of winter period as well in the UK and there was this like, well, do you want to go over and study in California for six months and three or four people from California can come and study in Wales? So I was like, that seems like the worst deal in the world for for, for someone. I'll absolutely bite your hand off. So we, I went over there and again, built up a relationship with uh, John Garhammer, Eric Burkhart, who were you know, real thought leaders around weightlifting and S&C at that period of time. At period of time. And um, i had the opportunity to assist on their coaching programs with uh, volleyball, men's women's volleyball, men's women's basketball, baseball, softball, uh, track and field. So every, you know, the, the baseball team would start training at 6 a.m. And they would all be, you know, in five rows of five doing star jumps or moving at the same time. And it was like so regimented and so different to the experience I'd had playing in professional football teams um, and working with, you know, athletes in the UK. It couldn't have been more different. Um, And they were all on this really restructured weightlifting programme. So I learned how to coach Olympic weightlifting. Um, I had a a really fun time out there coaching, playing football, boxing, Um, and then... Um, yeah, came back with a, just a ton of that. And I did the most amazing course there, which was called The Psychology of Coaching. Um, and um, it was like on a Thursday evening for three hours. And this guy would just come in and give us books on Buddhist philosophy and ask how it connected with coaching. And, you know, it was just fantastic. So again, real poignant experiences there. Loads of experience coaching hundreds of athletes who are performing at a high level week in, week out. Um, and then... Obviously, when I came back to the UK, I'd had like this kind of accelerated experience in a period of time when strength and conditioning in the UK was just gaining some traction in kind of athletic preparation. Um, so, yeah, it, it meant when I kind of graduated around the period of time that I graduated, um, I had some good experiences to be able to start doing a PhD with Gareth Irwin in the uh, sort of biomechanics of transfer of training. Um, and um, I was able to get some work at Millwall Football Club, helping them, because they wanted to get their players stronger, so helping them do that. Um, Again, at that point, someone from Millwall became a coach, of the academy coach of Cardiff City, a player there, and he asked me to come and help him set up a gym at Cardiff City, and they had nothing there. So we went to Argos and bought some weights and put them in his port cabin, and the first day I demonstrated uh, uh, I think it was like an RDL and I kind of dropped the bar and went straight through the bottom of the porter cabin into this mud But below. <laughs> um, so I guess it was the kind of real inception point of sort of physical strength and conditioning with really practices into those different sort of yeah I guess football programs really and at that point that gave me the the kind of um, exposure skills and experience to be able to take on a job at the Olympic Medical Institute as the rehab, strength and conditioning coach, um, where I had the opportunity to men- be mentored by Marco Cardinali, and, th- and that's where I met Ben Ashworth.
0: Small worlds, so a six degrees of separation. Um, the the rehab unit somewhere that I visited kind of many years ago for a day, um, and I had the, the yeah. opportunity to shadow James Moore, Alan Hasler, and, and Fion um, out of the team there at the time. Um, I think it's a fascinating place, and I'm I'm envious that you've uh, you've spent lots of time working there yourself. How did sort of your your time working there and being a practitioner develop your coaching? Because it's quite a unique setup compared to what conventionally
1: people get to do in sport. Well, I had yeah, it's really interesting you say that. So I had two periods of time there. The, the one was called the Olympic Medical Institute, which was based at Norfolk Park Hospital, um, and that was um, a residential rehab centre. It was also the first, I believe, it was the first centre established for multidisciplinary like sort of science and medical support for Olympic or elite at level athletes in the UK. Um, I worked there for a year and then went on before the Beijing Olympics and then went and took a job of head of sports science and condition at Birmingham City for one and a half years. Um, and then within that period of time the Olympic Medical Institute had shut down and the intensive rehab unit had been established at Bisham Abbey National Sports Centre so there were two really different entities um one the BOA one kind of sat outside of the system the olympic medical institute northwood park hospital um so we tended to see a lot more winter sport athletes um and we really saw athletes who weren't getting much support at that period of time or ones that were referred in because they felt that we had a real uh, kind of level of expertise um, and had a residential centre which the kind of athletes thought would, would be valuable. I met a lot of judo bobslayers uh, and judo fighters there who have retained strong coaching relationships ever since. Um, the intensive rehab unit um, was set up as a collaboration and meant to be kind of integrated within the English Institute of Sport at the time. So for me, that was... Really, really useful experience for some of my later work with the FA, the English Football Association, because you were only working with an athlete between sort of one and three weeks and you had to respect and understand the role that you played within that athlete's rehabilitation. You could gain a lot of information, provide them with a lot of information and insight into their injury and their stage and where they're up to. You could provide them with a hell of a lot of support and that kind of collegiate atmosphere and environment. Um, and you can make them feel great about themselves as well. Um, so they, those were some really powerful uh, learning experiences. Also, that into that truly interdisciplinary model of it doesn't matter whether you're the physio, the nutritionist, the physiologist, the s coach, the doctor, the psychologist. Everyone has got is an equal stakeholder within that particular individual's rehabilitation and has got a really Important role to play within it, um, and I think those are experiences that I, th- I think traditionally, rehabilitation is kind of led by the physio, or diagnostics decisions led by the doctor, performance training led by the SNC, and you know the the overall program led by the coach. Well, actually, in, in my experience. These leadership roles are really, really important, but actually really great leaders in those space invite high levels of contribution um, from expertise, real diverse level, like kind of types of expertise. And I really saw the power of that play out at the OMI and the intensive rehab unit. Um, and I guess similarly in other environments where I've been in where that hasn't played out that way and you're only responsible you know, for that. So I kind of went from the Olympic Medical Institute to Birmingham City, where I was part of this kind of interdisciplinary organic rehabilitation thing where we tried to understand everything associated with the athlete's injury, put in a process to help them. To um, so when I went to Birmingham City, the first thing the physio said to me is when they're injured, they're with me, when they're fit, they're with you. And I'll tell you when they're fit and when, and then you can work with them, which was kind of so... in such contrast to how I'd worked it didn't make it wrong or there wasn't anything wrong with that but it was just so alien to me um which made it a real challenge for me
0: beyond kind of like I guess like the logistics of how a team functions collaborating on rehab or performance did it change much for you technically in terms of how you coached or um your your technical sort of understanding of physical development and robustness from from being in that incredibly collaborative setup
1: yeah, well, I think I was lucky enough to work with Ben and another physio called Paul Thorley and Greg Retter at that period of time. And their level, level of functional anatomy was incredible. So every I had like a accelerated internship in kind of understanding functional anatomy at a period of time when um, I was studying a PhD in biomechanics and motor learning. And Marco Cardinali, the first thing he did when I went to the Olympic Medical Institute, gave me the uh this huge book on EMG and said, these physios tell me that no one's glutes firing, go and find out. So then I was able to kind of like which was a ridiculous challenge really. Um but it, it was um I, I then I kind of had the opportunity to then put all these things together, sort of understanding of functional anatomy, understanding of principles of mechanics, neuromuscular system, to develop my kind of knowledge and insight into principles of exercise selection and training prescription um, so i think that period of time really accelerated my kind of knowledge and understanding of that i think the other side of that as well is and i think probably the experience of personal training really helped me with this was because you're working with the athletes for such short periods of time you have to find a way of building a rapport and an understanding um and like with them it, immediately because you don't have the weeks and the months and the years of of training and preparation to kind of get to know someone um, and to really learn about them. So you have to tune into these things really, really quickly. Um, So that was a really powerful experience of that, basically tuning into other people's emotions and feelings and, um, you know, what their tells are. Maybe I should start playing poker maybe, I don't know. Um, That kind of knowledge, that kind of combination of understanding some real depth around exercise selection uh, and injury and trying to read and understand people really well so you can connect those two to help them make progress with their injury i think those two things that i've learned and have stuck with me
0: was that kind of interpersonal um, pull where you have to get you know you have to get to know the athlete very fast was that something that you would sort of do intentional things with like try and have sit downs with them or would it be more just uh, something that you're more conscious
1: of when you're working with them day to day. I have to think back on that a little bit around what I did. I think there was bits of both. Um, So I'll give you an example of the intensive, the intensive rehab unit. We would sit down with the athlete when they first came in and spend two hours with them. Just you tell us your story. Like there isn't anyone in the room here other than us. And your responsibility is just to tell us your story, tell it from your perspective, don't tell it from anyone else's. Um, And we would have the opportunity to ask questions, to listen, to demonstrate the show. And then we would do a joint physio and S&C assessment. I'd go off and do some testing maybe with EMG, with force plates, watch them move, analyze footage of them in competition and build this really complete picture. Um, and I guess that's really similar to what I do now at 292 Performance So what we do at 292 Performance is we just spend a hell of a lot of time asking questions and listening and making sure we understand what's really, really important to the athlete, to their support team um, and getting as much detail as possible and then trying to identify, we had this brilliant problem-solving approach which was developed by a guy called Dr Ian McCurdy who was in the military at that period of time. I think he was CMO with the CMO of the British Olympic Association, and he de- developed this approach, which is called the problem-solving approach. Which essentially, we will take all this information, mm-hmm. and what we will do is say, we think these are all the problems or the, all the kind of limitations or handbrakes on your rehab at this particular point in time, and then from that, we can then identify, we can then prioritise it, and we can say well, these two or three things here. If you don't get these ones done now, then it's really going to limit you later on. We can then put measurement tools in place and say, this is how we know when it's done. We can identify how we're going to do it as a team and ultimately who's accountable for it, who's responsible for it as well. So it's this really, really powerful way of understanding an athlete, being able to articulate to them exactly what you're going to work on, why and how. Um, and then as from a team perspective, how we were then going to go about Um, crafting an experience or a a training rehab system or programme for them to help them make progress. Um, So I guess that was maybe a a more formal way of doing it. Um, I think, you know, as I've become, you know, and and the environment was set up for that. I think some of my later roles with, say, you know, with the England football team, for example, you don't have as many of those kind of formal opportunities to do that. So a lot of it is setting up a training environment and then watching and observing and just seeing how the players or the athletes are interacting with that training environment that you've put in place um, and then using that as kind of those behaviors rather than conversations as a way of understanding what's important to them. So kind of almost like an in, uh, intentionally
0: more observant and hands-off at times when you can be? Is that kind of
1: what you're saying? 100. So we did some work with Doug Lemov, who's got this amazing book. I don't know if you're familiar with it, which is the uh, Coach's Guide to Teaching. Have you, have you seen it? No, but I'll, I'll be I'll be shopping for it afterwards. I'm sure. It is, it's such a great book, and one of the things he it's almost like an observational checklist. Like if you're trying to make a specific change or have a specific learning experience or outcome from an individual, which is really what all of our kind of training sessions are, then you should be consciously seeking that behaviour. So if I've put a training session in place and I want an athlete to engage in it in a particular way, like let's say it's a real simple one. Uh, We're all going to do, as part of the session, we're all going to do lunging. You know, there's a bunch of lunges in there. And the things I'm really looking for is, okay, one, is everyone... Doing it, is there some level of intent, uh, of effort and kind of weight going up around it? Um, two, uh, you know, are they like lunging onto a flat foot and going for full range of motion? You know, let's take those two kind of things alone. And you have all your players name in the squad. There might be 25 players in the squad. And you have those two things next to it. You can go around the session and just as soon as everyone knows what they're doing, you can just watch and you can observe and see okay, did anyone miss a set? Does anyone that do, you know dropping smoke bombs like look like they're doing one thing but really just chatting with other people and then leaving or you know, if, you know if you're trying to get consistency in a training environment um, are people going through the motions or lifting intensity or and then similarly like what's their technique like so you can check it off and then give yourself some real good i guess ammunition to be able to make a decision on what next to do with that athlete's journey as well.
0: That that really resonates with me, actually. I remember earlier on in my coaching days when I was full-time as a coach, my old mentor, Dave Rowland, who you, you may or may not know from the sort of yeah. UK circles, um, he would encourage uh, like people like myself, like younger coaches to have like a, a reflection sheet uh, where yeah. you would have, you know, post teaching a group of athletes list out, you know, what the technical focus of the session was, uh, your goals in terms of, delivery even how you speak your language you know yeah. everything like that was kind of um fair game for discussion and reflection and, and I think I probably went from looking like Dick Van Dyke playing you know 20 musical instruments in Mary Poppins as a coach holding athletes together and screaming to um I guess over time deliberately becoming a quieter coach a little bit more a little bit more in the corner to be honest um trying to like empower athletes to do stuff without me um more so than me being the, the conductor at all moments, telling everyone on a micro level what they should be doing.
1: So we, we did some work on this with uh, James Hairsign and Chris Black at the FA. Um, we recognised that the periods of time, the amount of time we had with the athletes was really, really limited. So the coaching experiences we needed to, the, the kind of, sorry, the, the experiences the athletes needed to have within that period of time needed to be like, their rate of learning needed to be very, very high and their ability to connect with a session. And we we have to be so, so deliberate with, you know, if you've got an international window um, with, so I guess if there's people in America listening, then um, international soccer, you know, matches and stuff, they they happen within two or three day games within a 10 day window, uh, three, like five times a year. And then every two years there's a tournament. (laughs) And within those windows, you have to qualify for the big tournaments as well. so there's a high amount of pressure on making sure you can actually get the points required to qualify for these tournaments and Obviously, you're not working with the athletes on a day- to- day basis, so it puts a lot of kind of threat and vulnerability onto the s and C work because you've got more opportunity to do harm and to put the players under heightened injury risk because they're doing things which are unfamiliar with them than you have of doing good, like changing a physical characteristic or a quality. So you have to be really deliberate with what you actually want to get out of those sessions. And a lot of it was changing um, perspectives on physical preparation, giving players or athletes more understanding of their bodies and the things they could do to help them. Um, And then other things like how to actually deliver intent within the tasks that they, they were currently doing. So it completely shaped the way, changed the way that we thought about coaching in that particular context and allowed us to be really deliberate and define our behaviors at the start. So as a coach, how do we want to be going into the session? What are the things that the athletes require stepping in? So, you know, by taking that, okay, logistics, uh, equipment, uh, you know, time of day, time of season, blah, 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 all that type of stuff. And then going, okay, well, what do we want the actual outcome from this session to be and for who? Um, Do we want the energy to be high? Do we want it to be low? Do we want them to be um, learning or do we want them to be getting an adaptive stimulus? Do we want it to be really, really competitive? Or do we want it to give them the opportunity to to try things out? Um, Do you want their players to have high levels of autonomy um, and reflection? Or do we want to be really prescriptive and tell them what? So these are all the kind of environmental shifts in the coaching behaviours that that you have as an individual coach are all up for grabs on every single session and being really deliberate about how you want to be and how you want the session to be is absolutely going to shape the experience the athlete has and there's a consequence their learning experience as well. Um, So, yeah, I I, I guess long-winded way of saying that that, um, it was a really, yeah, we became and I've become really, really deliberate about that because I recognise the impact and the value it can have on the athlete's experience and therefore what they're learning.
0: And I suppose in some way you'd, you'd probably have to like periodise, just to use jargon, um, your yeah. your session focus, depending on time of year, you know, because I'm guessing if it's World Cup time, that might not be the best time to be learning um, versus oh, windows yeah. in the year.
1: So we actually, I think, you know, you've actually used, in my mind, you've actually used the right word. So we we kind of periodized for World Cup preparation, for example, European champs preparation. We periodized, we used a microdosing approach um, to manage volume. Um, And the reason for that is, you know, not microdose in my mind, doesn't mean a small dose. It means... We're looking at a training cycle and saying, This is the total volume of work I want to accumulate across this training cycle. And then, how do we accumulate this in a way which essentially isn't going to cause the player acute fatigue for the next session? I think you guys, you've had Matt on, haven't you? And he's. Yeah, recently, uh, yeah. Uh, Dylan, one of our other hosts, yeah. spoke to him, yeah. That's right, yeah. So, I mean, he's done amazing work in that space. And I was so fortunate to be able to learn from him around that as well. Um, but yeah, that, and that was kind of the reason we took that approach. That approach on, but what it meant is that if volume stays the same, you can manipulate intensity. So we used um, the kind of constraints in the session to be able to, and the, the gamification environment to be able to manipulate training intensity. Um, so if it's today is a session which was like a learn session. So as we're starting, okay, this is a learn session. When the first two or three sessions going to be learning. So you're learning how to perform the tasks. And then by the end of the session, you should be able to, which might be 20 minutes in duration, you might just have to be really effective at being able to deliver these particular activities so that the next session, you can go and deliver it with with some intensity. And then the next session is, okay, you use the same kind of, you attack it in the same way you attacked the last set. So again, the intensity is driven up throughout the total volume of the session this time. And the next thing you can do is start adding some a little bit of me versus me competition, which I think is the lowest level of sort of gamification for intensity. So, okay, last week if it was a some VBT based work or distance you're jumping for, or weight or reps, whatever it is, just got to beat what you did last time. That's all it is. The next one is can you do a little bit of me versus you? So, see if you can find someone or partner people up and have a little one v one competition with them. That raises it. The next thing which raises intensity, again, in my experience, is team versus team. So, but, but again, if it goes beyond, so everything you do is contributing to the team's overall score, and you start to get some really high intensity stuff there. So, some of the things we would do, for example, is do um, cumulative, you know, you've got like a maybe there's like four or five activities within a session. Three or four are just maybe some hamstring bridges and Copenhagans, um, some calf work, just some general preparation and stuff. And then there's a um, you know jump squat competition. And you take the accumulation of, yeah, you take the accumulation, like the total score for each team. Whoever has the highest score wins a point. And then when we go outside and we do two different races, one of them might be, uh, yeah, two races, like an out and back over 10 metres, each time you you win you get a point for your team so suddenly you can see like the the intensity of the session that's just creeping up and creeping up and everyone's really getting after it so that the final and then the, the final kind of the, the most intense way that you can generate a training environment so you want the highest intensity in it is one v one in a team v team competition. So what you've got to do is go find another individual within the opposition team and compete against them in a particular task. Um, and then if you get a point, if you win, you get a point for your team. And that, that, the, the, the environment is incredible. Like the atmosphere and the energy is amazing. The intensity that the players are performing. And by the way, you then, the only thing you're responsible for doing is a coach is making sure that you put the particular constraints on those exercises and tasks to make sure you get the adaptive responses you want as well. So the intensity, of the atmosphere, it, it feels absolutely amazing. And you might do that, say, two days out before a game, so very, very high intensity. And then the next day, the day before a game, or maybe the day after a game, you bring it all the way back down to, okay, this is a consolidate session. All you've got to do on this one here, really similar tasks or activities. Just get the reps done with high quality.
0: I, I love, I love how you've kind of um uh, structured that. And I think, I think for me, when you, when you gamify training in that way, you can kind of deleverage leverage um, the intensity that you want to get and the output from the athletes from the kind of I don't know how to phrase it, but like the sort of psychological request of getting an athlete to work really hard. If you gamify it, it's a it's a much more subtle way to get that output um, in a productive way than if you ask an athlete. To work incredibly hard at that same level without the gamification, does that does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and, and it's important to consider as well that intensity is, you know, maximal intensity. But should we really be asking our athletes to be able to work at maximal intensity on every single session for every single task? Like, you know, probably not. Even if you look at some of those, when you know, going back to my university days, one of my favorite things to do was read in the uh, the old. Um, Zatsyorski texts or the you know, that they had this thing called the Soviet sport reviews, which is this kind of like journals from the sixties and seventies. And all you know, look at all those training paradigms and the the, the weightlifters who are, you know, the, the kind of most explosive and and actually just watch it with track sprinters as well. Like they don't sprint maximally every single day. They might maybe do it once a week maybe twice a week at an absolute maximum because the cost on their body, right? So intensity is a very, very bright flame that burns very, you know, it burns very, very bright and it, the more intensity you're capable of delivering, the more it's going to take out of you as well. So I, I think those, and also from an emotional perspective, it kind of loses its edge if you're doing it every single day. So you kind of need to crescendo into these moments and then come down and crescendo into these moments and come down. But as long as the consistency of work is in place and above a critical minimum of intensity, then you get an adaptive response eventually, right?
0: A lot of what we've been talking about has been, I guess, quite focused on sort of intentional uh, intentional coaching, just to be really broad on it. Um, yeah. Obviously you reflect on uh, a session and, a block of training and things like that but do do you have a kind of structured way about how you reflect or how you evaluate whether uh, a session met your aims for the player for the coaching style you know whatever the sort of variables you're, you're focused on are
1: yeah so um I guess it's different whether I'm coaching on my own or I'm working with a team of coaches as well um but I'm not actually I I guess the process is the same but there's just different people involved with it I go into each session with complete clarity on obviously the session content where it fits within the training cycle um and, and then also how I spend a lot of time designing the environment um so the competition structure, the, the kind of structural pieces of the session. So almost more like a technical coach would do, like how they design the flow of a, you know, a football, a rugby, a judo, a boxing session, thinking about how the flow of the session is going to work and how people are going to interact with, with the environment and the tasks as well. So I'll be really deliberate around that based on the stuff that we've spoken about. Then I'll also be really deliberate about how I want to be. Um, and, Seek the opinion and guidance of all the other people that would be coaching there and make sure that everyone's got complete clarity on their role and how they're going to be within it as well. Um, And then always, after every single session, debrief. So there's complete clarity going into the session, whether that's just me or whether that's the team that are kind of delivering with me. Um, they all have the opportunity to contribute to that, but everyone has complete clarity on what their responsibility they're responsible for and then what the structure, the flow, the outcomes, et cetera, of the session are as well. And then we always debrief afterwards, but against those same things. So we tried to achieve this today. Was this the right thing to do? We tried to deliver in this particular way. Did that achieve this outcome? And what do we need to do differently next time to achieve that outcome? our coaching behaviors uh, and who did and didn't it work for so it was anyone that it didn't work for versus ones that did and again our particular coaching behaviors that we said that we would commit to doing you know did we do that and what do we need to do differently to achieve that outcome uh and i that's the process that i go through personally and the process that i take a team of coaches through if we're delivering as a group
0: yeah no thanks for transparency on that i, th- I think i um, like reflection communication whenever i speak to practitioners i think everyone credits they're important but it it can be real hit or miss when you ask somebody what's your system or structure for that because everyone kind of credits our communication is important or reflection reflecting on a session is important but um i really appreciate appreciate it when people like yourself have a very thought-out framework that you actually apply to doing that yourself rather than just being kind of a you know an agreeable term that we all know is important but we don't necessarily have a system
1: or structure for it's not complicated though is it like what you're trying to achieve how you're going to do it and then start back with and then making sure there's logic and you know there's an obvious connection between those things and make sure that everyone in the team has got the opportunity to contribute to both of those things and then come back afterwards and say we tried to achieve this did we or didn't we and this is how we agreed we'd behave or we'd set it up to do it and and then have an opportunity and then what have we learned for the next time we want to do it but for me it's completely critical like there's no yeah and I probably I don't know maybe you need to ask other coaches that that have worked with me or that I've worked with about whether it's effective or not but for me I always learn so much from doing it and it's kind of mission critical
0: just a quick break in the conversation with Ben at Informed Performance, you may have noticed that we're launching more webinars and courses online from some of the expert guests that we're lucky to record episodes with. If you head to informperformance.com and click on education, you can see our growing webinar and course offering. One upcoming example is Claire Robertson, who we just had on the show, who's releasing a course with us called Managing Patella for Moral Pain for Athletes. We'll be releasing regular offers and new courses, so keep an eye on our education page so you don't miss out. To, to kind of take a bit of a cha- change in topics, can you, you know, you've had obviously these really interesting uh, stops in sport along the way. What are you doing now with, um, you know, 292 Performance and I guess like, what is it? How are you doing it? Why are you doing it? Give us the sort of uh, <laughs> the overview of what it is and and why.
1: Yeah, so I set up 292 Performance probably as, I guess, a culmination of all, all of my experiences. Um I've always wanted to set something like this up where the kind of the athletes are really at the heart of the program. So what essentially what we've done or what I've done is try to set up a company that provides interdisciplinary support based on the genuine needs and ambitions of athletes and their support teams. Um, And then tries to kind of create experiences like, to deliver those things, almost exactly like we're talking about with the kind of coaching experience as well. Um, I've been so fortunate in my career to work with just some amazing people. And I wanted to make sure that athletes that, uh, what was I, I'll take it back a step, like athletes who've decided that they want to take complete ownership of their preparation for performance, um, I've got huge amounts of respect for. So if an athlete turns around and said, Either I'm not happy with how I am delivering my job, my role, you know, I'm not happy with how I'm performing or I want to learn more about this or develop in this particular area. I think that's a that, that requires courage to do that initially. Um, uh, and I also think that athletes then deserve to have the team around them that can absolutely deliver that. And I've been so, so fortunate with the people that I've been able to work with in my career. So to be able to curate or pull those different individuals together, to be able to work with athletes or other high-performing individuals, to be able to achieve those ambitions is a, is a kind of real privilege that I have, really. And that's why I've decided to set the company up. S- similarly, like having worked in lots of different team and individual-based environments, I also recognise and understand how challenging it is to be able to provide real high level of depth of information and quality around lots of different people to lots of different problems. You know, the IRU experience was incredible, but it was exhausting for each athlete, you know, and, and that's also one of the reasons why sports or teams would refer athletes into the intensive rehab unit because they knew that we could commit time, effort and energy into really nutting out that problem. So again, what I've tried to set up is these kind of profiling and programming systems that allow us to get into an exceptional level of depth about understanding the kind of the the the, the kind of reasons why an athlete might not be performing the way they want to or their real strengths that they need to lean into to keep making themselves better and better um, and then kind of lean into that I think the final one with this as well is that I, I, I understand again having worked on the other side of the fence I understand the kind of the fact that there's probably conflict associated with this as well. Um, and from my perspective, a really strong company value that I have and personal value that I have is this is a collaborative approach. So one of the things we don't do is work in isolation and we don't post everything that we do on social media. We respect the discretion. We have. We're have. a discreet service and we respect the kind of the stories and the journeys that their athletes are on and their support teams are on. And it's up to them how they share their stories. Whereas what we want to do is showcase how we work and the work that we do, rather than necessarily who we're working with. Um, and then equally, uh, you know, athlete—the way that athletes perform is completely down to them, but is a, co- a consequence of all the support that kind of goes on around them. And we've probably got much as a support teams, we probably have much bigger opportunity to to. Um, cause disruption to an athlete's performance than we have to actually enhance it so I don't want my company to or you know or, or the services that we provide to disrupt something that we're trying to help make better so how we communicate with the clubs and the other organizations that we interact with for that athlete's performance is completely critical and a really important part of the service we deliver.
0: Will you be kind of doing any of the S&C like physical prep yourself or are you kind of more orchestrating as like almost like a performance director for the individual's
1: yeah, it's both. It's, it's both, really. I think we've got a team of coaches that are working with us now, which is really, really cool and um, making me pull my finger out of the arse to, my ass to uh, actually commit the systems that we've got down, down to paper, which we've got an event on um, November the 17th in London at Red Bull headquarters in central London, which we're really, really proud to be able to showcase the systems that we've got and the partners that we work with and the kind of the people that we have to be able to help our systems and something that's really important to me is that there's no kind of secrets like what I want to be able to do is develop really really great systems support app that is based on all the experiences that I've had working with amazing people and turn that into a really robust system that helps athletes get better and then be able to share that with anyone who's who's interested and wants to learn from it because ultimately the only thing that happens is the consequence of sharing it That it gets better because it's open to challenge from lots and lots of people. And it then gets delivered, hopefully, by more and more people, which then means that athletes continue to get better and better. So November the 17th, we're going to be showcasing that. Um, In answer to the actual question you asked was, um, uh, yeah, but I I want to coach a limited number of athletes. So I personally won't coach more than three to five athletes, but have a team that coaches and does remote support for a wider variety of athletes and individuals. Um, because I want to make sure that I can commit the time and energy to that. But we've got systems and amazing coaches that we work with that can cater for a lot more. Very cool.
0: And I know you're not super active on social media personally, but where can people follow you and and, and find you to to kind of see what you're up to?
1: I'm doing my best. (laughs) It wasn't meant as a criticism. No, 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 no. It is. It's funny, actually. So I've got a business development manager called uh, Shona McCallum, who's a hockey player uh, that I used to coach. So she's in in the company. She's been the most amazing asset that I've actually brought into the company, uh, because she's managing a lot of these these things to help the business grow um, and to become more sustainable. Um. Um. Yeah. So she's on me on that, and she. Um. So. 292 um, performance dot com. Um, I've got a Twitter handle which is Rosenblack Ben. There's Instagram which is Ben underscore Rosenblack, and then all the Twitter, and Instagram, and LinkedIn is two nine two performance. So feel free to go and have the website and and have a look at the event and see what. You, and I'd, I'd love some feedback around whether this is resonating with with our community um, and what you know what we can do better really as well. Cool. Well, mate, it's been,
0: it's been from a selfish perspective. It's been great to um, hear you speak in 2014 and then nearly 10 years later get the opportunity to pick your brains uh, in a one on one conversation. And uh, I've no doubt the listeners will have tagged along and learned a lot along this conversation too, because I certainly have
1: that was a cool conference wasn't it that was a really good conference there was some big hitters there as well that was brilliant so look i can't thank you enough uh, and to and to ben ashworth as well for for inviting me along and giving the me the opportunity to uh, to indulge in uh, in my personal history um, and I, and i really hope that there's some things that we've discussed today that resonates with with our community and um i'd love to hear what everybody uh yeah what feedback people have and um and what they want to learn more about as well perfect thank you mate